Thank you, Amy. It makes me so happy to look out and see all your faces here on a Saturday morning. Many of you, or several of you, I haven't even met, but what a joy it is to be here on a Saturday morning with women. Um, we get to hang out together, and we have, I know, again, there are so many things that need to happen on a Saturday, so I'm grateful that you're all here, um, and how much more wonderful it is that we get to dig into God's word. Um, <clears throat> So before we continue in our passage, I just want to encourage you, leave your Bibles open. We're going to keep going back to it. Um, I want to tell you about one of my favorite Christian heroes. Perhaps you've heard of her. Her name is Corey Ten Boom. I've spoken of her several times before. Uh, Corey Ten Boom was a Christian woman who lived in Holland with her family uh, when the Nazis came into power. Now, Corey and her sister Betsy and her family, they were sent off to uh, the concentration camps for rescuing and hiding Jews in their home. Now many of you may know that when men and women were sent into the camps, they were stripped off of everything including the clothes on their back. But somehow Corey and her older sister Betsy, they were able to smuggle a Bible into the concentration camp. Now you can only imagine how difficult, how, how uh, grave the situation was within these camps. You know, there were women in despair. They were huddled in close quarters. They shared. There were several of them to one bunk. There was sickness. There was filth. And then, of course, just knowing that you're going to die, just that despair permeated the air. And there were bugs and fleas. And it was a terrible, awful circumstance to live in. But Betsy and Corey, they continued to place their faith in Jesus and put, and put their trust in him. Now, Betsy had an attitude of thanksgiving throughout the whole thing. And Corey asked her sister, am I supposed to give thanks to God in everything? And Betsy told her, yes. And Corey hated the fleas and the bugs that they had to live with. And Corey said, even the fleas? And her sister said, yes, give thanks to God in all circumstances. So like I mentioned, you know, they had this one Bible with them. So they were able to have these Bible studies with all the women who lived with them. So they were able to share Jesus and his gospel and the hope of knowing Jesus with these women who were going to die. And you know what? They continued to do this day after day, week after week. And they always wondered, how is it that none of the guards ever came in? Because you know, if they came in, the Bible would be gone. But it never happened. And they just wondered why that was the case. And one day, Corey overheard one of, the, one of the guards saying that they would not enter that place because it was infested with fleas. They were able to rejoice in the midst of the circumstance because ultimately, Christ was proclaimed and the gospel was advancing. Perhaps not many of us can relate with Corey and her story. But we're going to see how the Apostle Paul and his story was not too far off from the story uh, of Corey Ten Boom. We're also going to find out if these stories have any relevance for us today. What does it mean to suffer for the sake of Christ? And is it true? Can we really rejoice in the midst of that kind of suffering? Before we dig in any further, I ask you to just bow your heads with me and let's pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you again. We thank you that we've heard from your word as Mary spoke to us earlier. 
God, we pray that you'd continue to open up our hearts and our minds. And even as Paul prayed for the Philippians, we pray that our love for you may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Come, Holy Spirit, and do the work that only you can do and be glorified, even as I share from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the passage that Amy just read for us, Paul continues his letter to the Philippians. Now just a quick background, uh, Mary mentioned this earlier, Paul is imprisoned in, in Rome, he's awaiting trial, possibly execution. Now even though he's facing death, we're going to hear him say confidently, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We're going to see him rejoicing in the midst of persecution and suffering, and he's going to encourage the Philippian believers to do the same. Why? Why is it that he can do this? He rejoices through all of it because he knows that ultimately Christ is being proclaimed and the gospel is advancing. We just heard about the love that Paul has for the Philippian believers and their mutual love for him. This is their beloved church planter. He's writing to let them know how he's doing in prison. <coughs> Excuse me. And honestly, this is about the best report that you could possibly get from someone who's in prison, right? A letter that is filled with joy and confidence. A letter filled with hope. And Paul starts off by reassuring them and saying, all is well. Let's read what he says in verse 12 and 13. He tells them, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now let me pause for a moment and tell you about the Imperial Guard. Philippi was a Roman colony, so the Philippians knew exactly who Paul was talking about. The Imperial Guard was made up of a cohort of highly elite soldiers. They were handpicked to protect the emperor and his officials. And Paul was under house arrest. The Roman equivalent of our modern Navy SEALs was in charge of making sure that Paul wouldn't escape. They knew that Paul wasn't your average criminal. In fact, he wasn't even condemned yet. And the guards perhaps had heard some rumors that for some reason this man had appealed to Caesar and he was waiting to be tried. Now in the meantime, even though Paul couldn't leave the house, he was allowed to have visitors. And most likely these visitors were other believers. So every six hours or so, the guards would change shift. And they say that Paul was chained by his hand to a guard at all times. Can you picture Paul talking about Christ with his friends? And if you're a guard stuck there for six hours, you know you're going to hear the gospel. They didn't have iPhones and gadgets and magazines back then to occupy them. So they had to just sit there and listen to this man having conversations with his friends. Now, not too long ago, I heard the story of when Colleen and Mary were right outside our church doors and a gentleman came in and they were having a conversation with him. And within about 10 minutes, Mary ended up sharing the gospel with him. And if you've hung out with Mary long enough, you know you're going to hear about Jesus. 
So can you imagine being stuck with Paul in there for six hours straight? There was no way you could escape it. You were going to hear the gospel. And this went on for two years. Paul wrote to the Philippians and he told them that the imperial guard and all the rest have heard the gospel. All the rest. Whoever that is. Who knows? Maybe the guards after their shift was done went to the bar. Or they went back to their families. And they talked about this odd prisoner they were in charge of. And they told them, they told people that there's this man under house arrest, but he's not bothered by it. Maybe they said, this guy is kind of peculiar. He's always happy. He's always singing with his friends. But something's different. He's not really crazy either. And then this man keeps talking about someone named Jesus who happens to be his God. And on and on, conversations like that happened. And the gospel was spreading throughout the Roman Empire. Paul had a prison ministry going, and he had a captive audience. Paul's imprisonment seemed like a huge setback, but ultimately, he knew that Christ was being proclaimed and the gospel was advancing. Now, while this was going on inside the prison walls, there were believers on the outside who were also gaining uh, confidence. Look at verse 14 with me. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, I learned recently that the Romans were actually tolerant of most religions. But they did not like the Jewish Christians because these Christians would not swear their allegiance to the emperor. They only pledged their loyalty to one God. Of course, the emperor didn't like that. So if you, were live, if you were a Christian living under Roman authority, you could be risking your life sharing the gospel. But the believers were actually hearing about Paul's courage and his boldness in prison, and it was spurring them on. They too were becoming bold, and they were proclaiming the gospel fearlessly. Once again, Paul rejoiced because Christ was being proclaimed and the gospel was advancing. So far, so good, right? Everything that seemed like a setback was working to advance the gospel. But let's keep reading in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, while things seem to be going well, something seems to have changed. Paul said that while some believers were preaching Christ out of goodwill, others were not. And we don't know for sure why that was the case, but it seems that they were doing it in a way to stick it to Paul. Maybe they didn't like all the attention that Paul was getting. He was supposed to be in prison, and the gospel is still advancing. He was still preaching. Maybe they didn't like that. The imperial guard was hearing about Jesus. Everyone was talking about Paul. Now, Paul does not give us any specifics, but he tells us that these people were jealous, and they preached Christ out of rivalry. They thought that they could drag him down. But listen to Paul's response to them in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, 
Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's concern is not what they think about him. His only concern is that Christ is proclaimed, and that's all that matters to him. What a way to live life, right? You don't care about what people think about you. You don't care about being ridiculed. All you care about is living and preaching Christ. Now, right after that, Paul's going to say it again. Yes, and I will rejoice. Are you guys seeing this? People are preaching out of rivalry to stick it to Paul, but he was still able to rejoice again because ultimately he believed that Christ was being proclaimed and the gospel was advancing. He's telling them, I haven't lost hope. I'm not discouraged. But next he's going to tell them about an impending reality that's about to face him. Let's keep reading in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed at all, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. What's the tone here? We hear hope coupled with eager expectation. Paul's hope lies in what Christ has already done for him. His eager expectation and absolute certainty is in the eternity that awaits him. And he knows that through the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Philippi, he will be delivered. He tells them, Christ is going to be honored in my body, but here is the reality he wants to remind them of. Christ will be honored in my life or my death. I will either be declared innocent and be freed from prison, or I will be condemned and still be freed, not in this physical body, but through eternal deliverance. Now I can imagine if you're a Philippian believer listening or reading this letter up to this point, you have great hope. And then suddenly for a moment, your heart sinks just a little bit. Wait, what is Paul saying? He's going to die? He can't. He's our spiritual father. He's supposed to come back to us. We have so much more to learn from him. He has so much more to do. He has so much more to teach us. For a second, they lose hope. And right before your mind wanders off, you hear Paul saying in verse 21, For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. And he goes on to say, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now Paul is not saying that he wants a way out of the suffering. We see that he's actually torn. He's hard-pressed. He wants to die so that he can be with Jesus. This is the Jesus who called him out of the darkness of this world into his marvelous light. This is Paul who in his youth went around persecuting Christians for what they believed in until Jesus appeared and his life was transformed forever. 
this man who went around persecuting other believers became the one who would be persecuted and suffer great and go through great suffering all for the sake of Christ and his gospel. If anyone has a good reason to say I have fought the good fight and I've suffered my fair share, it's Paul. He can say I want to go home to be with Jesus. In a different letter to, a church, to the Corinthian church, Paul writes this about his sufferings. He's received countless beatings. He's been beaten with rods, often nearing death. He was stoned. He lived through shipwrecks. He suffered all kinds of dangers. He faced hunger, thirst, sleepless nights, and all kinds of hardships. But for Paul, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He gets to live in the presence of his Savior for the rest of eternity. Death for a believer is always better. After the toils and struggles in this world, after living a faithful life for the Lord here on earth, wouldn't it be so much better to be united with our God for all of eternity? Take that in for a moment. Lord, give us that kind of a longing, that whether we live or die, it would be all about you. Oh, that our love for God, for Christ, would be so great that it would supersede every longing, every desire that we have here on earth. That it would be so great that we would be willing to give up our comforts and perhaps even suffer for Christ and his name. Despite all this, Paul tells them in verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul reassures his Philippian family that even though he wants to be with Christ, for their sake he is convinced he wants to live. Paul has reason to rejoice in life or in death because ultimately it will proclaim Christ and advance the gospel. But then he goes on to say this in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The Greek translation puts it this way, behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Earlier I mentioned that Philippi was a Roman colony. The Philippians swore their allegiance to Caesar. But Paul is reminding the believers at Philippi, your first and foremost loyalty and allegiance is to Jesus alone, and you are to live lives reflecting that reality. It seems that there was some kind of divisions within the Philippian church, and we're going to read about that in chapter 4 um, in a couple of retreats. Colleen's going to touch upon that. But perhaps it's with this in mind that Paul encourages them. Stand firm in one spirit. Paul is telling them that while you live in this Roman colony, you should live as citizens of heaven, working side by side, not divided as a people, 
because ultimately your desire should be to proclaim Christ. And he further tells them in verse 28 not to be afraid in anything by their opponents. Now earlier we talked about Paul's opponents. Are these the same ones? We're not sure, but some scholars say that these opponents were different, perhaps because of the context he's writing to. He asked the Philippian believers to be citizens, or to live as citizens of heaven in this Roman colony. It's this context where they were despised for what they believed in. And he continues in verse 28 to say, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He's telling them, Philippian brother and sister, stand firm. Your citizenship, your salvation comes from God and it is eternal. They can try to destroy you or your body here on earth, but they cannot touch your salvation, which is from God. In fact, their rejection of God's people and his message is ultimately going to lead to their destruction. And as we keep reading on, Paul writes to them, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering for the sake of Christ is a gift that is granted to us for those who believe. Paul is telling them that this opposition should not surprise them, that suffering as a believer for the sake of the gospel should be expected and embraced. And he ends off this portion in verse 30 by saying that he too, like them, is no stranger to conflict or, or suffering. In fact, he's still in the middle of it. Through sufferings and setbacks, Paul and the Philippian believers can rejoice because Christ is proclaimed and the gospel is advancing. Friends, none of Paul's letters should make any sense to us. Things that should have caused despair and turned out to be reasons not to rejoice actually ends up being the opposite. They end up being reasons for the gospel to advance. These, ho these are hopeless situations, but don't we see God doing that throughout the story of the Bible? where he uses hopeless situations and turns them around. Perhaps you heard the Old Testament story of Exodus, where there's a Pharaoh and he hates the Jewish people under his rule. And so he orders two midwives to kill all the baby boys. But somehow, one little baby is spared. And wouldn't you believe it that God engineers it in such a way that this little baby boy named Moses ends up in his own household. The Pharaoh pays room and board and tuition to raise up the very boy who will end up destroying him one day. What seemed like a hopeless setback ended up being the plan that God would use to redeem his people. And then there's another story of a girl named Esther. That's another story in the Old Testament. Esther was a young Jewish girl who lived in exile with her uncle and all the Jews. There was an evil official named Haman who hated the Jews. And so he comes up with a plan to destroy them. But through an unexpected twist in the story, Esther becomes queen. 
Haman's plan backfires, and wouldn't you believe it, the people are spared, but he ends up hanging on the very gallows that he set up to kill the Jews. When we read the story of Esther, we can rejoice because what seemed like a hopeless setback ultimately proved to be the very plan that God used to redeem his people. And hundreds of years later, the Son of God himself came into our world. He preached a message of hope and salvation for all those who would put their faith in him. But he was rejected. He was crucified. Can you imagine what his followers felt? Jesus was supposed to be their promised Messiah, the one who would deliver them and rescue them. But now he's hanging on a Roman cross. He hasn't defeated his enemies. He was defeated by them. He didn't crush his foes. He was defeated or crushed by them. The cross was a symbol of ultimate shame, ultimate defeat. And when Jesus hung up there on the cross, his opponents laughed at him and mocked him, saying, Some Messiah. But the symbol of ultimate shame, of ultimate loss, became our greatest symbol of ultimate gain. What seemed like the greatest tragedy became the loudest proclamation of victory. What seemed like the greatest setback became part of God's most extravagant plan that God would use to rescue us, his people, and bring us back to himself. The good news of the gospel, that a tragedy ends up becoming the greatest climax in God's story of redemption for us, his people. And that is why Paul rejoiced in prison. He rejoiced because his life, he was living it for Jesus and his gospel. He rejoiced that even though he was confined to prison, the gospel was advancing. What his opponents thought was a major setback was actually advancing the gospel. Do we yearn for the gospel to advance with the same passion that Paul had? Do we as believers partner with other believers around the world? Colleen mentioned this uh, earlier. Week after week, we here at church pray for an unreached people group. Is that just something nice that we do? Something that we tag on on a Sunday service? Friends, we play such a vital role for believers around the world who have given up their lives for the sake of the gospel. Read the stories of missionaries and you will see the part that you play as they work for Jesus. What does it mean for us to suffer for Christ? You know, as I presented this talk to our group last week, one of the ladies came up and said to me, you know, I can't relate to Corey Ten Boom or the Apostle Paul. Do you feel that way? Perhaps these examples of suffering um, are unrelatable. It's true. Most of us don't know what it means to suffer or be persecuted for the gospel. Perhaps you feel guilty that you cannot identify with that kind of suffering. Please hear me. It would be so sad if you left here feeling guilty today or disconnected with God's word. 
because you don't feel like you've gone through persecution or suffered at a great extent for, the, for Jesus. Now, if the Lord has been prompting you to go or to move for, to a place where people don't know Jesus, perhaps you should spend time in prayer and consider it. Perhaps you should move for the sake of the gospel. But most of us here will not be called to go to remote places for the gospel. So what does it look like for us to live lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus? A well-known pastor, John Piper, puts it this way, the mark of living worthily for the gospel is a unified, fearless striving for the faith of the gospel. He says that there should be an effort in some way to see the gospel spread and to win more and more to faith in this world of unbelief. He further goes on to say, say this, your striving for the uh, faith of the gospel will not be exactly like anyone else's. Don't be paralyzed in your imagination or by comparing yourself with others. Dream your own dreams. God wills for you to strive for the faith of the gospel, to do something with effort and discipline and endurance to promote the light of the gospel for the glory of Christ. Here is the message of the gospel. It is a wonderful news that Jesus died for sinners like you and me. That he rose to conquer death. And it is the message without which no one can be saved. So if we have put our faith, our entire faith, in this message, in this gospel, are we living lives where we are trying everything to share this message with anyone and everyone? Are we willing to step out of our comfort zones to build relationships with our neighbors? Or are we willing to continually love and engage family members and friends who don't want to hear one more time about Jesus? Now, suffering for Christ is not going to look the same way for all of us. Here in the West, things are relatively safe. So suffering is going to look different. It may come in the way of insulting remarks at, works, at work, or a cold shoulder for sharing the gospel. Or maybe you're avoided at family gatherings or don't get invited at all because of your desire to share the gospel. Now while there is physical persecution and extreme suffering in parts of the world, I do believe that whatever we suffer and however we endure for Christ, Jesus is glorified through our suffering. And we can rejoice when our love for Christ is so great that we would count it an honor to suffer in his name. Maybe you're a young mom. As you're listening to this, you're saying, I'm a young mom. I barely have time to shower every day, let alone, let alone go across and meet my neighbor. Maybe you're wondering how this passage applies to you. And I want to tell you, if living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel is about proclaiming Christ, if it's about rejoicing when Christ is proclaimed, then this message is for you. Because you have been given a great charge to proclaim and to preach the gospel to your young ones day in and day out with great hope that one day they too will believe and that they will become part of this great band of believers 
that they will live, rejoice, suffer, and maybe even die for the name, for the sake of Christ and his gospel. If you don't know Jesus, this message of hope is extended to you as well. Perhaps you have a friend or family member who's relentless. They go out of their way and, sh and use every opportunity to share the gospel with you. Maybe you've seen that coworker being slandered and ridiculed at work, and they just don't seem to give up. But have you considered why they would do this? Why is it so important to them that they would continue to and be persistent in sharing this message? Friend, your family member or your friend, your coworker will go through great lengths. They will do, they will be persistent and they will continue to share the gospel with you just so that you would put your faith in Jesus and believe in him. So my prayer for you is that today you would consider Jesus, that you would consider this glorious gospel, that you would give it serious thought and put your hope in Christ alone. Friends, I pray for all of us here today that our lives, that we would live our lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel, that we would rejoice even in the midst of suffering, knowing that ultimately Christ is proclaimed and the gospel is being advanced. Let's pray. Jesus, your gospel is glorious. It is a wonderful good news that we sinners like us who did, did not deserve your goodness, that you would die, you would give up the comforts of heaven, you would come down and you would die for us so that we would live. Lord, let this message be penetrated into our hearts day after day. And as we live, may we proclaim this message loud and clear to everyone and anyone you would bring into our lives. Lord, may we be encouraged by your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.